You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, what do you know? A bunch of social scientists, geeks and projectionists, otherwise known as sage and nerve tag, recommend a national lockdown to save lives and to save the NHS. Well, guess what they say now? It worked. Hallelujah. They got something right. That's right, those nice professors from Imperial College London have issued the results of their latest React 1 study and it says that COVID infections have fallen by two-thirds in a month. Just fancy that. Perhaps they'll pay themselves a big bonus for being so terribly clever. This morning, we'll be asking Nigel Farage just exactly what Boris Johnson should do now, especially since some scientists are now saying that lockdown can be lifted quicker than the last time. As we've been saying all week, let's get back to work and let's get the economy cooking again. Nigel may have a thing or two to say about Donald Trump as well. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we are joined by Charles-Henri Galois, the president of Generation Frexit, uh, on the rise of Marine Le Pen in France and the threat she poses to Emmanuel Macron in the upcoming elections. Plus, of course, Helen Dale will be here with her take on the latest attempt to ensure free speech is still possible at our big institutions of learning. And she's also got something to say about what's going on in Dubai right now. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you, your thoughts, your fears and your ideas for getting Boris to step up to the plate and do what the country wants. 0344 499 1000. Apparently, Sir Keir Starmer will be setting out his long-term vision for the economy later on today. Uh, I'm not quite sure why, because he's probably not going to be here for the long term, is he? Uh, I'm not sure uh, that we want to listen to any of it, to be honest. But if it comes on during the show, uh, we may give you a little snippet. Plus, we're heading across the Atlantic to see what they're saying about Meghan and Harry invading their own privacy and doing a tell-all interview with their good friend and multi-millionaire Oprah Winfrey. James Wales making a guest appearance as well uh, after a little mishap on his show last night. Almost ended uh, with him having to go to the emergency room. It's a dangerous business, this radio broadcasting. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, would you believe it? We apparently have got infections falling, tumbling down. According to the front pages this morning, uh, COVID infections have fallen by two thirds in a month in England. The virus apparently is spreading most amongst primary school age children and young people. This is research coming out of Imperial College. But what we've found, and I'm pleased to say we found one, uh, is a scientist who seems to be quite sensible. Mark Woolhouse, Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at the University of Edinburgh, said it should now be easier to get out of lockdown quicker because of the way that somehow uh, all of this is beginning to turn out. I think we do have reasons, he says, to be more confident that we can move out of lockdown swifter than we could have done out of the first one. Reviews of evidence have shown that schools could have safely reopened sooner and that outdoor spreading was very rare. He told all this to the House of Commons Science and Technology Committee, right? So what we do know uh, is that we should really have reopened the schools before now. We should really have reopened uh, the shops before now. And outdoor spreading of coronavirus is very, very small. And it's probably in very little and few cases uh, the reason why COVID infections were going up. Let's face it, an awful lot of COVID infections are in hospital, are in care homes, and they hurt and cause death to the elderly members of our society who are over the age of 88. And that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, is a fact. Those are the bare facts of where we are uh, and what we are doing. This morning, we're going to be talking to Nigel Farage about a great many things. He wrote a piece in The Telegraph recently. Uh, he's been talking a lot as well about the border shutdown that we're currently uh, experiencing in this country. Because at the moment, if you fly into this country, more than likely, you're going to end up in one of these quarantine hotels, regardless of where you've come from. Now, that, as we know, is not working particularly well. Um, but also the borders 
are not operating particularly well either. Let's talk to Nigel now. Nigel, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Lots of things for us to discuss this morning, Nigel. Um, not least, I was very interested uh, in your take on the shutting down of the old borders um, to people coming here from foreign countries. Because my first thought when uh, uh, when it was announced in the House of Commons by Matt Hancock was, what happens if you're coming in on a dinghy from uh, the, uh, the, across the channel? And I immediately thought of you, because I assume that's still ah, happening. Well, there's a very easy answer to that. If you come in via dinghy... You still ha- you still get to go to a hotel, but you don't get charged. Right, and, and, you, and you don't have to make and you don't have to make the reservation yourself, presumably. No, but I don't think you even have to prove a COVID test within seventy two hours either. Um, and of course, the astonishing thing is, Mike, that what the government have now done is to offer an amnesty to the one point three million people they estimate to be here illegally right so uh, it's a pretty raw deal if you come legally but if you come illegally you're okay well i was on sebastian gorka's show last week and i said to him basically what this government has now done is criminalized people who have gone away on holiday who are british citizens and decriminalized people uh, who have come here illegally uh, from foreign countries who are foreign nationals it's quite a bizarre kind of juxtaposition isn't it yeah it really is but of course when it comes to illegal migration into britain they don't want to talk about it You know, I mean, this is a subject that I've pushed incredibly hard over the last year, as you know. Uh, And I regularly urge people to write to their MPs to say something must be done. And, you know, in most cases, the letters from constituents simply get ignored. Mm. Uh, And, you know, when you think, as I say, it's 1.3 million people that we estimate here illegally. Uh, It's a very real issue, costing a vast amount of money. And who knows, who knows what coronavirus risk those coming across the channel pose. Well, exactly right. I mean, quite frankly, Nigel, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't know about this story at all. I don't think there's any point in pretending that that's, uh, that's not the case. Because I had a campaign going as well where I was getting people, listeners, to write to their MPs asking uh, at what point in, in the constituency in which they lived uh, were people being moved into hotels? and uh, where you know Who was in charge of it? Uh, how many circo operations were there going on? And I would say that you could count on the fingers of one hand um, any MP that actually gave an honest answer. Yeah, that's right. They don't want to know. They want to brush it under the carpet. And interestingly, mainstream media were, I was going to say in the same boat, but that's a bad pun, I get that. (laughs) Uh, But they didn't want to talk about it. I mean, there I was last May Mm. out in the English Channel, you know, filming this stuff going on. um, And the BBC, Sky and others didn't even want to touch the story. I know. Absolutely staggering. Let's talk a little bit about the lockdown, because more and more now we're seeing um, scientists even actually saying we should be lifting the lockdown. Uh, schools can be opened. We can start reopening shops. We have to get this economy back uh, running and cooking, don't we? Yeah. And I mean, full marks to Charles Walker, uh, the MP who has really spoken out very passionately and very eloquently about this by saying, look, we were told that once we had a vaccination programme, life could start to return to normal. And all we're being told is at some point next week, the Prime Minister will tell us something. And, you know, we're living at the moment with rumours, facts that have been contradicted. But, I mean, if they're serious in saying that we can't fully ease until the infection rate is below 1,000 a day, I begin to ask myself, Mike, what happens next year when there's a flu outbreak? Mm. Do we go back into lockdown? I mean, have we permanently changed our attitude towards risk in this country? I'm not for a minute denying that for a small percentage of people, this virus is very serious. And I do know several people who've died with it. All right. Yeah. But uh, the sheer amount of damage that is being done. I was talking again last night to the local Kent uh, diabetes groups. Mm. You know, we're just not screening people. So what the longer term implications are, for cancer, heart disease, strokes, diabetes sufferers. You know, we are building up a medical time bomb with our current attitude. Yeah. I had a a very interesting tweet today from a a listener who said that he's had his uh, letter from the doctor to say, please come in and get your COVID vaccination. He's been waiting a year for an operation, which he actually needs. uh, And he says he can't get that organised, but they can organise a vaccine for him, uh, which he says he doesn't necessarily need because he's already had COVID. 
Well, yeah, I mean, there is this whole point, isn't there, that, you know, about 20% of the population now do have antibodies. Um, but look, uh, you know, praise where it's due. I think you and I have been very critical of this government mm. over the course of the last year and with good reason. But isn't it interesting that when it came to the vaccine programme, they appointed this woman, Kate Bingham, yep. who came in from private equity and from what I can see, has not only done a fantastic job, but has also absolutely justified Brexit 100%. Mm. So at least there's some good news out Absolutely there. right. I mean, I suggested not entirely tongue-in-cheek the other day. Maybe they should put her in charge of the Home Office. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, anything uh, that will bring about a change of culture uh, in our quangos and our civil service would be very welcome indeed. It would indeed. Let's cast our, our eyes across the Atlantic. Um, as we would have predicted, and as we probably both did predict, uh, Donald Trump was acquitted yet again. Uh, so rather than now being called by Adam Bolton and the, his like, you know, the only president who's been impeached twice, he's actually the only president who's been unimpeached twice. Yeah, I thought what was what was very interesting was there was a lot of criticism of Trump's legal team. You know, we were told that he had the B team mm. representing him. I watched their summing up in the Senate where they showed that in the impeachment process, the Democrats had doctored the speech that he'd made on the 6th Quite of January. Extraordinary, that. You know, you know, where he said very clearly, march peacefully, mm. where he said, if we have to get our own back, we'll do it in the primaries, i.e. we'll do it democratically. Mm. They then produced a tweet as evidence of this great plot to sack the Capitol that actually they showed was from 2020. Yes. Not from 2021. Yeah, I mean, and, and they edited it. I mean, that's, I'm surely that's, in, in this country would be contempt of court. You'd be locked up for it, wouldn't you? It really was astonishing, the lengths to which they went. But, you know, the problem here is that the left are, or, or the hard left, are so motivated by hatred so motivated by their sense of moral superiority that they believe they're better than those that are on the right, that they're prepared to cheat and lie uh, to go about achieving their aims. And so I thought in the end, it was quite right that he was acquitted. And I think what is now fascinating is the Democrat base are more firmly behind Donald Trump than they ever were. Mm. Uh, you've seen Fox News, the great Fox News, who've become very critical of Trump, are losing viewers in very, very significant numbers. And what Trump is planning now is to get a lot of people like Mitt Romney, who has now voted twice to have him impeached, mm. to get Mitt Romney removed as a candidate the next time he runs for the Senate. And I think all the British newspapers who sort of say, well, what the Republican Party need is Trumpism without Trump, don't get the point that whatever his faults are, whatever his excesses may be, this is the only guy that can, that, that can actually unite the Republican base, keep working class support for the Republican Party, and crucially, keep that big black and Hispanic vote, which he and he alone has built up. So I, I, um, I was talking last night to somebody who'd been with him yesterday, and he is on great form, uh, he's not retiring. He's not going to play golf every day. Um, he fully intends to have a tilt at this in 2024. Yeah, interesting times. It's going to be uh, fascinating. And also, of course, Joe Biden has not quite uh, set the heather alight, has he, with his new presidency in the way that everybody seemed to think that he would. And in fact, there was even a Black Lives Matter protest that got violent in New York uh, just last week. So so uh, plus a chance, I think you would say, wouldn't you? Well, I actually think that Black Lives Matter and Antifa um, are likely to behave even worse under a Biden presidency than they did under a Trump presidency because they'll see a president that has to try and keep his party together. And his problem is he's got the sort of the AOC group, the squad, you know, who were there within the House of Representatives and he's got to keep them on board. Um, so I think what you'll see is Biden being forced to appease BLM and Antifa. And of course, as we well know, if you appease bad people, they just come back and ask for more. Exactly right. And Nancy Pelosi's a bit of a loose cannon as well because she's raging uh, at her second failure to clip the wings of uh, President Trump. And she's going to be looking for some kind of payback from somebody. And she probably won't care who it's from. Well, I think very interesting, isn't it? That Nancy Pelosi, so outspoken of the Trump rally on the 6th of January, 
And yet when you see when dozens of American cities were on fire last year with these protests, she actually sought to justify the actions. And, and that's what you've got. You know, there is not a level playing field here. There are extremes on the hard left and extremes on the hard right. And they're both as bad as each other. But people like Pelosi can't even bring themselves to say that. And her definition of far right is, of course, where much of middle America really is. Yes. Now, it might come as a surprise to you, Nigel. I don't know whether you saw the piece yesterday. The New York Times wrote a big piece yesterday about, you know, the march of the sort of the right wing broadcasters. And we were named uh, as talk radio in London uh, as a sort of Rush Limbaugh uh, of Britain. Um, and incredibly, last night, the news comes in that Rush Limbaugh had passed away. I mean, you were familiar with him. Um, and many yes. people who are into um, radio are, but not everybody in this country has heard of him. He was quite a character, wasn't he? He was. I mean, he really kicked off in 1988 uh, with a daily talk show. Uh, I was hooked into Rush Limbaugh in about 1990. Mm. Um, he was outspoken. He was also very, very humorous. Yeah. And you could never quite tell you know, whether he was just taking the mickey a little bit or whether he meant it. Uh, but he became a voice for conservative America at a time when the Republican Party had become rather like the Conservative mm. Party in Britain under David Cameron, yeah. a sort of a mush in the middle. Um, and Limbaugh was there as a voice. And he built that radio show up to 20 million listeners every single day you know he is the biggest ever talk radio sh show host in, in in u.s history he's probably the biggest they'll ever be um and i was very pleased i was actually in the chamber um for the state of the union speech last year when melania placed the congressional medal of honor mm. around his neck um and so he died you know he wasn't very old 70 died of lung cancer uh, but there's no doubt that trump would have struggled to have won the nomination had it not been for people like Rush Limbaugh, who'd been there for years and years and years, busy making the arguments and, and absorbing the hatred of mainstream media. Yes. And did that incredibly well. Well, if you think about that, you, you, you're describing a guy who kind of came to prominence throughout the period of Clinton and Obama, right? So you, you really were kind of seeing him. He was the real alternative. He was the real opposition to them. Yes, and I mean, during those years, the Republicans were led by people like Romney, mm. you know, Hopelessly. and the Bushes. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, Trumpism has, 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 has absolutely triumphed within the Republican Party, just as Euroscepticism has now triumphed in the British Conservative Party. Absolutely right. Now, let's talk a little bit about Reform UK. Uh, obviously, um, you are the party that has proposed uh, that lockdown was not as necessary as it was as it, as it has been. Uh, what, what are your plans coming up? You've got the May elections looming. Um, yeah. What's the uh, what's the latest? <laughs> well, well, look, I, I get slightly annoyed at lazy journalists saying that Reform UK has been formed as an anti-lockdown party. Mm. It has not. You know, when we launched the Brexit party, the slogan was change politics for good, that we thought that Brexit was the first step to a necessary set of reforms to bring our country into the 21st century. And that means things like getting rid of the BBC license fee. Yeah. It means things like reining in the quangos, the civil servants. It means things like saying that a House of Lords stuffed with hundreds of Tony Blair David Cameron, and now, of course, uh, Boris Johnson's friends, uh, is, is, is completely unfit for purpose in the 21st century. So it is a radical reform agenda. And part of that is the way the government has handled the coronavirus crisis, the extent to which, you know, the small guy, the small woman, the sole trader, the small business, in many cases, are going to the wall, um, where actually, you know, if you compare, for argument's sake, Florida, which didn't lock down, mm. with California, which did lock down, it almost seems to make no difference. So we're not just anti-lockdown, and that's a very important point to make. When it comes to these elections coming up this year, uh, we have a problem. Firstly, that we're a new party, so you, you, you've, you've got to get your message out to the public. But what the government have said is that because of coronavirus, we're not allowed to leaflet door to door. We're not allowed to knock on doors. We're not allowed to street canvas. So we are racking our brains, Mike, right now as to how we can put together an effective campaign 
given that we're being told that effectively we can't do it. It would be a very cynical man that would suggest that the lockdown rules would be kept in place until then, uh, wouldn't it? Well, it'd be an even more cynical man that would say we'd move to all postal voting. <laughs> we'd finish well, up quite. with, uh, maybe with that's... half the population, rather like America, yeah. having no confidence in the system. <laughs> well, exactly right. And maybe, though, if we are led to believe that, that Boris is going to move quicker than we are so far being told, maybe by May um, there will be uh, things that you can do. Maybe the pubs will be open. Maybe the restaurants will be open. Maybe the, you know, the shops will all be open and we'll all be walking around happy as Larry. What's pubs? I've, I've not heard of these things. What are they? Yeah, I know. I'm like, I was talking to my sister the other night. She said, I've just been out for dinner. I said, what, what does that even mean? You know, I've completely forgotten <laughs> yeah. what, what it's like, you know. But hopefully at one point soon, we will be back in one, uh, Nigel. I shall see you then. Thank you very oh, much indeed. Very Nigel much. Farage, leader of Reform UK. Uh, had a few problems with the uh, line earlier on, uh, but all is well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Yeah, so apparently Sir Keir Starmer is going to be speaking later on. Uh, He's going to be talking about his vision, uh, long-term vision, no less, for the future, right? (laughs) Now, there are two problems with that. One, I don't think he's around for the long term because even his own party don't like him. Even the people who thought he was the answer now don't think he was the answer. Um, Of course, the Corbynites all hate him. Um, and the Blairites aren't very fond of him, and the people who voted for him think they made a mistake. Apart from that, he's doing really well. Um, The long-term vision for Sir Keir Starmer uh, will be here on Talk Radio, of course. Uh, If he says anything interesting, we'll let you know. But I'm not holding my breath, to be honest. Let us speak now, though, uh, to one of our comrades uh, over in the European Union, Charles-Henri Gallois, president of Generation Frexit, is with us because he's going to talk to us about what's going on in France right now. Uh, Charles, a very good morning to you. Bonjour. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, great to hear your voice. Very interesting things happening in France at the moment. First of all, tell us a little bit about the old uh, coronavirus situation. How's the, uh, how's the com- uh, country dealing with it? Uh, how is the economy? What's going on? Uh, I think you're very lucky to be outside the EU because when you talk about the coronavirus crisis, I mean the European Union has a big responsibility Uh, If you look, for example, at the vaccine rollout, which is a disaster. I have seen this morning, for example, that Morocco, that has started only three weeks ago, its vaccine rollout is now uh, vaccinated more people in percentage of population than the European Union. So it's a total disaster. And why? It's because, uh, you know, during spring 2020, the the states the member states were dealing directly with uh, with the labs actually and the ceo of moderna uh, with a french has told that everything was uh, on track and then the european union has wanted to take uh, this uh, this issue and it has been three months late and that's why the european union has not uh, has not the jabs and cannot vaccinated as fast as it should be so it's a total disaster and if you look even broadly, it's a disaster because of the European Union, because, you know, we don't have enough uh, beds elsewhere on the European Union. The European Commission has told many times to the member states to reduce uh, the healthcare beds, and we don't have enough beds to, uh, to attend people. That's why you have to do curfew, you have to do lockdowns. So it's almost very linked, all the issue, or if you, told, uh, if you uh, talk about the relocations, you know, we... All the medicine are produced in China or India, even the masks, we are so dependent on it. And it's because the European Union in its treaty has always uh, favored uh, free trade, even with countries that does not share the same, uh, let's say, social or economic standards. Mm. And that's why you have relocation. So don't be mistaken, the EU has a huge responsibility within this crisis. And you, you're very lucky to be uh, outside yes. and to have very good uh, vaccine rollout. I think so, yeah. And so does this mean many people now are considering whether being in the EU is such a good idea? Sure. I, I mean, it will definitely be a huge argument. Maybe it's the best uh, advert for Frexit as it's the best one for <laughs> For Brexit, I think this crisis has been managed uh, uh, terribly by, by the EU. So it's one more argument in favour of Brexit. And I think what we will have to do uh, to do the maths and to, to see wh- what happens, uh, it will definitely uh, be in favour of, uh, of Brexit. It's, uh, 
it's uh, it's a bad uh, let's say it's a bad moment but uh, it shows uh, that the eu is not uh, at all uh, the vaccine but it's a virus so we have to struggle against uh, this virus. Yes, exactly right. And meanwhile, um, you know, the election is not too far away uh, next year. But Emmanuel Macron uh, is looking a little bit shaky at the moment, isn't he? The, the issue is he, he doesn't, you know, have a big electoral basis because even in 2017, he, he had only, uh, if you look at the people that could vote, he had only uh, 18%, you know, of the electorate, which was very tiny basis. Mm. But he was able to win because he faced Marine Le Pen in the second run and against Marine Le Pen. Almost everyone will win at the second run. So it's basically the issue of the French uh, politics uh, nowadays. It's Macron does not have a huge support, but if he will be able to face Marine Le Pen in 2022 at the second run, he may win even if he, he, he is very he's a minority in France. So it's like uh, it's like a blocked system, and I, I hope that we will deblock it. And what we are advocating, advocating for it's to advocate for French uh, referendum on EU membership, the same as you did. Mm. And actually, we are pushing for it. We have launched a, a big platform for referendum uh, Frexit, uh, and we hope that it will grow bigger and to to offer it and to propose it to to the candidate in the presidential election the same as you had with the camera and it was not even for brexit but uh, for electoral purposes he, he included it in uh, in its manifesto so we are planning to do basically the same and the let's say the hope is that there will be a, a third force maybe it will it won't be a brexit force but they will include this referendum in their manifesto and then if we get this referendum, I'm pretty sure that we will be able to, to win it. Wow, that would be quite something, because without France and Britain, um, the European Union falls apart completely, doesn't it? I think the euro currency will be definitely dead without uh, France, which is uh, the second the biggest economy uh, in it. Then the EU, maybe it can survive a few months, a few years, you know, but I think definitely without uh, France, which is... Uh, one one of the founder of the of the of the EU and the, the without uh, the Great Britain without the UK and without France uh, the two main economies after Germany I think the world project uh, will be dead and even geographically France is at the center uh, of it I think it, if we are out you will have you will have the UK you will have Switzerland Norway France and so on I think it will be that and basically it's a it's a great uh, it's a great future because don't don't be mistaken you won't be uh, isolated uh, at all it will be just like it was before it means international cooperation mm. instead of a supranational state that will decide for everything even if you don't have common interest on one topic or another and it, it's 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 not a, a very healthy uh, organization, and we can have healthy uh, cooperation with a free, independent state. Yes, I mean I remember when it was just called the European Economic Community, and the idea was that you know we would have a common bond. Uh, of trade um, and of, uh, of friendship. Uh, but it, that was as far as it went. We didn't all have to agree on everything. We didn't all have to have the same policy on everything. And we didn't all have to have terribly restrictive uh, laws that governed uh, the entire uh, state of Europe. Yeah, definitely. And you, you can have, you know, a free trade area between countries such as uh, the UK, France or Germany that are quite close in terms of uh, social, economic standards. But even within the EU, now with the uh, eastern countries you have uh, in in uh, bulgaria uh, let's say the the minimum income is uh, 260 euro per month so you you cannot be in the same free trade area with countries that don't have you know the, the same standard living so i think we we should focus on international cooperation with countries that have basically the same uh, the same standards because it, it helps the economy but if you do free trade with uh, countries where the, the revenue is 100 or 200 euros per month, 
it, it will be uh, it will it will uh, bring damage to your own workers. It's not very uh, it's not an LC system. So we we should come back to, to that. I think. Yes, I think so. And finally, Charles, what about the fishermen of Normandy? Because I'm told that they're not very happy with the way that uh, the EU has kind of, uh, in their words, given away the fishing to back to Britain, uh, and they may take their uh, revenge on Macron as a result of that. Um, what's their kind of feeling at the moment? You know, the issue is the France, uh, it's, it's the main uh, maritime domain in the world. So we have a fishing area. The issue is, as we are in the EU, we have also, as you had in, in the UK, all the fishing industry of other countries that now are fishing in our waters. Because if we were just in our waters, they, they would be able, you know, to, to, to live and to, to, to do trade and to, to, to fish. The issue is that we, we have all the, the fishermen also, other European countries that comes in French waters. So basically, it, it's a very, uh, the domain uh, is now tiny for both French uh, fishermen and also uh, the other one of the Europeans. That, that's the main issue. I think if France was independent, we could do exactly the same as you did. It means uh, takes back of our water and then to, to allow only uh, uh, French fishermen or to have some agreement or some exchanges in some country, but on a one-to-one -one relationship. But now now we, we face basically the same issues that you had. So for the French fishermen, definitely uh, not, a, not a, a good deal as, as, far on, uh, uh, we, as far as we are in the, in the EU. Great to talk to you, Charles. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Charles-Henri Galois, president of Generation Frexit. Uh, from talking to him, you would think that France is actually not far away uh, from having a referendum, not far away if they did have a referendum from actually voting to leave the EU. Uh, and what would that mean for the EU? Some pretty bad news, you'd have to say. Uh, you only hear this kind of stuff here on Talk Radio. It's the home of common sense, of course. We're live streaming on YouTube. Uh, we're live streaming on Facebook and on Twitter. We want to take your calls as well uh, because we've got lots to talk about. Uh, the government is in the process of lifting the lockdown. We need to put pressure on them in order to make sure that they do it right, uh, that they do it sooner rather than later. And, of course, because we now have scientists talking about doing so, surely the time is now for them to do it. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, you might have heard Sir Keir Starmer earlier on going on uh, about failed conservative ideology weakening the foundations of society and how he wants to have a more secure and prosperous future under Labour. Well, not anybody really much wants to vote for that, I'm afraid, Sir Keir. So uh, when he's back next week in Prime Minister's Questions, by the way, I don't really understand why they've taken a recess for a week, because quite frankly, uh, this is not the time. But that's another story altogether. Let's talk to Dr. Lawrence Buckman uh, from North London's GP. Dr. Lawrence, a very good morning to you. Good morning. I should say good afternoon, shouldn't I? I've good afternoon. I've lost yeah. the plot already. It seems, it seems time is flying by. It's already Thursday. It's near the end of the week. Coming up on Monday, we'll get Boris Johnson's route, route map out of here. Um, but interesting to see a couple of things, really. COVID infections have fallen by two thirds in a month, according to uh, Imperial College. But also they're saying it's spreading now most amongst primary age children and young people. What do you make of that? I think that's true. I think the, the National COVID Service, for whom I work sometimes, um, uh, is finding that the age range of relatively sick people is falling quite steeply. Mm. Uh, so whereas two months ago, most of them were 60s, 70s and 80s, now they're 30s, 40s and 50s. Um, and that's not that surprising because the older people tend to isolate more, tend to be more careful about shielding. Uh, and of course, now they're all getting vaccinated. So you're going to inevitably find a drift towards younger people. Mm. And although younger people rarely get ill and children very rarely get ill, now there are less elderly uh, in the pipeline. Younger and younger people are turning up. Not very many of them, but still enough to be concerning. So they're talking about hospital admissions now, eh? Yes. Yeah. OK. I mean, because we're told that the peak was around about January the 12th, I suppose. And if one of the reasons for um, the lockdown was to make sure that the NHS was not overwhelmed, that presumably uh, was a successful lockdown. Yes, uh, it's, it's done what it was intended to do. We still have far too many people in intensive care. Um, they're the ones that occupy the most time uh, and, and cost the most. 
and also have the most risk of dying. Mm. Uh, so we have to get those numbers much further down. Um, almost that's the most important metric, um, as well as the number of people in hospital with COVID generally. And as got far- to get the NHS back to working normally. Yes. I mean, all the comparisons that I've seen suggest that we've got the rates down to something like what they were at the end of September. Is that what your understanding is? Yes, yes. I mean, it, it really is falling fast. We've got an R value between, well, around 0.7, mm. which is, in other words, shrinking. Yeah. The numbers are shrinking. And we, appears to be, we appear to be showing a shrink across England of roughly uh, 50% every two weeks, mm. uh, which, is, which is great. It, I mean, it's not good enough, but it is great, uh, which means that the numbers will fall. The trouble is, of course, we don't know who's got it and isn't ill. Mm. Uh, and we're still going to bear down on that. Yes. I mean, I was talking to some uh, some people that rang in today who were asking about infections and, and a lot of people that they knew, for example, getting infected in hospitals. We do know there's a lot of infection in hospitals. and A lot of people do get infected in hospital if they go in sometimes for something else. Would it not be handy or sensible for the government uh, to put out statistics about where people are getting it? Because I've been saying this for a few weeks now, that if we knew where the sort of hotspots were, if you like, not just by area, but by place, like i.e. are people catching it uh, on the tube? Are people catching it, you know, uh, walking around on the street? Are people catching it in hospitals and care homes? You know, wouldn't that be useful information? It'd be extremely useful information. And it's for that reason that stuff like the REACT study from Imperial College is so important, because that's looking at numbers of cases, not numbers of people who are ill. Mm. Um, And of course, Remember, a third of patients have no idea they've got anything wrong with them at all. They don't feel ill in any way. Mm. And those people are the spreaders because the sick people are usually are in bed. Uh, it's the people wandering around feeling completely healthy. Mm. Uh, they're the ones we worry about. Now, where are they? Mm. Are they on tube trains? Uh, certainly studies of tube trains, uh, very few that have been done, show there's very little uh, virus lying around in tube carriages. Um, you would think that beaches would be very crowded, but there is not one study that shows that a crowded beach is a source of infection, mm. as far as we know. Because yes. you feel it would be, but actually no evidence to support that. Because it's difficult, um, it's difficult, isn't it, to try and conclude anything because of the movable sort of uh, nature of, of the facts. But it seems to me that September and at the end of September, um, you know, the rates of infection went up and the R rate jumped massively, partly because schools reopened and also partly because students went back to university. And that seems to have been a bit of a catalyst. But then there also seems to be... Um, things like the seasonality of the of the virus i mean for example this time last year we were kind of seeing a ramping up of the of the coronavirus and now we're seeing a ramping down so what does that tell you about the seasonality well that tells you it's likely to be a winter illness um and we're going to have to live with this being around i was going to say forever maybe not forever but certainly for an extremely long time in other words there'll be many winters when we have people um, getting ill with coronavirus and what we have to do is make sure nobody gets ill mm. or dies from it. yeah but wouldn't you have said last year that it was a kind of spring illness though uh i think we didn't know enough last year mm. uh we're getting much wiser as time goes on we get cleverer and cleverer so now it looks like it's it's winter and spring uh and it's it's going to fizzle now over the heat of, heat of the summer uh and then sadly it'll start appearing again I guess, Mm. in September, October. What we've got to do is get all the at-risk people vaccinated before then. Yes. And, I mean, the other thing that people say to me quite a lot is that if the government's expecting um, the rate of infection to dip below 1,000 before they can actually reopen lots of parts of the economy, we may never get to that number because of the fact that we're testing so many people. In terms of uh, uh, people getting admitted to hospital, I think we will get well below that number. Mm. Um, in terms of react study type work, in other words, screening the population in general, no, I suspect it's going to be an awful long time before we get below a thousand of people who've got no symptoms turning up to be positive unexpectedly. Mm. And what about? And I don't think we can wait for that. 
No, that's the problem, isn't it? Because I think because of the way that the, the, the political world works, because of the pressures that are putting on uh, that Boris Johnson is getting now from certainly many of his backbenchers, and because the, the rates are coming down, I mean, there's even, uh, I think there's one scientist, I don't know if you're familiar with him, uh, from the University of Edinburgh, Mark Woolhouse, who basically told a common select committee yesterday, I think, we have, I think we have more reasons to be confident that we can move out of lockdown swifter than we could have done out of the first one. Um, so he seems, I mean, once people, scientists start saying that, then Boris is going to have to start opening things up, isn't he? Yes, I think so. I mean, th- I, I saw uh, the whole of that uh, uh, evidence session, uh, his bit of it, mm. and he's very convincing but of course there are plenty of people don't agree with him um but he he says that there is a point where you're going to have to just accept that there will be circulating virus all the time yes and we will have to organize society so we don't put those people who are likely to die from it or get ill from it in the firing line of the virus and we know lots and lots of things from work done here and abroad about how to limit that Mm. And what's your view on the opening of schools in that case? Because obviously Scot- in Scotland they're opening some schools up next Monday, uh, which is pretty quick, and uh, they're not opening all of them. Um, and Boris is expected to say that March the 8th is going to be the date for schools in England to open up, but it may not be all of, all of those either. It may just be primary schools. I think uh, the time has come to open up schools, mm. I think. And what we'll have to do then is do absolutely nothing else until we see what that does to the R rate, the number of infections, and of course, although the children probably won't be ill, what that does to the adults around them. Once we know that, then I think we can start to unlock probably fairly quickly in the areas where we don't think spread happens. Mm. Got a good question here from somebody calling themselves Dodo, which is not entirely the greatest name I've ever seen. How long do these asymptomatic, it should be, COVID carriers stay infectious? They're infectious for about 10 days. Mm. But because they don't know they've got it, they can't possibly know when they're infectious, I suppose. They've got no way of knowing. Um, I, I, obviously, I've spoken to a large number yeah. of asymptomatic sufferers. Uh, and um, it only turns out they've got it because you do a test and prove that they have. Right. But if you don't do that test, and of course, you haven't really got a good reason for doing it, uh, those people um, are walking around yeah. spreading unless they're being as careful as everybody else. Mm. Wear a mask, wash your hands, keep a distance from other people. If you do those things, you can prevent it being spread. There's been a huge amount of work done in Japan on ventilation mm. and what happens if you open a window or have air conditioning on or off and where you sit people relative to the open windows and the air conditioning. Mm. These things can make an enormous difference. If we're all prepared to live outside in the garden, uh, in fact, the spread is pretty tiny. The fact is we can't possibly do that in a climate like ours. No. So w- what we have to do is make sure asymptomatic people don't unwittingly spread it to other people who might get ill from it. Is there a chance that the people who uh, test positive but who are asymptomatic uh, just don't have it and that the test is wrong? No, I don't think so. That Negatives, uh, sadly, don't always prove anything. Positives most definitely show you've got it. Uh, and you should be away from other people where you can spread it. Mm. Again, there's work abroad trying to stop spreading as opposed to illness using nasal sprays, which have stuff very similar to the vaccine, but squirted up your nose. And the evidence of that is it's very, very interesting because that would be a very easy way of dealing with it. Mm. But of course, they're still at the evidence gathering stage. They're not ready for use. Yeah, of course. And what do you make of the talk that uh, has been going around lately about kind of opening up the nighttime economy with the possibility of having sort of rapid testing um, in the street, effectively, um, you know, you say you'd go to, to Old Compton Street in Soho, uh, there'd be a testing spot where you'd go and get a test. You, somebody would give you a card and say, right, this is your pass for the night kind of thing. Is that practical? Um, the trouble is negatives don't prove anything. Yeah. It's positives that prove something. So if you're positive and you then go home, uh, well, fine, that, that would clearly reduce the risk of the nighttime economy being a problem. Mm. If, on the other hand, it's negative, uh, then you d- can't be absolutely certain, because there's about a 50% failure rate with the lateral flow tests. Um, you can't be absolutely certain that you're safe. I also don't like this idea of, of screening people just before they go somewhere with the, f- the false belief that you're therefore safe. You've still got to keep all the safety precautions, because let's say you are negative, 
but somebody who's positive breathes over you. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's too complicated. And also, if you're starting to do it for the whole of the nighttime economy, this is very expensive, although each test is very cheap. Mm. You start doing that mass, and that starts costing a lot of money. But again, it comes back to the, the, the balance, doesn't it? Do you want to have an economy or not? Um, and if you're willing to take the risk that you might get COVID and not be terribly badly affected by it, uh, should you not be able to do that? Yes, that's fine, except that at the end of every chain of transmission is a death. Uh, so although you might be fine and the person you give it to might be fine, eventually you're going to bump into somebody who's not fine. Now, once we've all been vaccinated, uh, then that's a whole different equation then. Yes. Uh, and I think, but the, the economic argument says you can't really wait until the whole of the population is vaccinated. That can't be the answer. Mm. So it's really at what point do you decide you can let go? And if schools open up and are not seen as massive spreading environments, and then I'm going to suggest next universities do the same, mm. and the same argument applies, if that's all right, and people can go back to normal office type work and uh, industrial type work where exposure can be controlled by, by where they are, then I think you can start doing things uh, um, more widely. Yeah, because, I mean, it is that old argument. I mean, there could you could argue probably that there is a death at the end of every chain. Uh, of infection, yes. um, in which case you'd never open anything. You know, Andrew Cuomo was quoted the other day, the governor of New York, was saying, if it saves one life, it's worth it. Well, actually, I know you can't say that as a politician, but maybe not. No, I think I think that's that's a, a, a specious argument. The fact is, you can't possibly have an economy because, you know, if we're all starving, then we will all die of starvation. So the, the ultimate economic argument is equally silly. Uh, you can't you can't ignore these things. You have to get people back to work. It's just how can you do it safely? Um, I would think once the at risk, the real at risk population, which is occupies the top 90 percent of people who get ill and die, that once they're vaccinated, I think you really can take the brakes off. Um, and that doesn't have to wait until September. Okay. Uh, that can be much, much sooner. Great. Dr. Lawrence Buckman, thank you very much indeed. Former chair of the BMA's uh, GP committee there uh, saying some interesting things. Some of you disagreeing with some of what you said on the uh, uh, on the text and the tweets there. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, of course. Uh, Ian Collins will be here in about half an hour's time to tell us what's coming up on this show after one o'clock. Mark Dolan from four. James Whale, of course, back, uh, tongue allowing, uh, at seven o'clock. He bit it last night. We had him on earlier, uh, but he seems to be okay now. Let's talk to LaDonna Harvey, uh, who is the breakfast host, of course, of KOGO in San Diego. But she's today in Phoenix, Arizona. LaDonna, very good morning to you. Good morning to you. I am broadcasting live from Dad's garage. So. Excellent. Well, it's very good quality stuff. So, I mean, you know, sometimes it's better than being in the studio, you know. I mean, our studio from time to time um, falls over. So probably in your dad's garage, you're probably better off. Um, you know, I was watching some incredible footage of snowfall in Texas the other day. I don't know whether you've got the same in Arizona, have you? No, uh, so not in uh, not in Phoenix. I think northern Arizona got a little bit of snow, which it normally does. Um, I know a lot of people think the entire state is desert, but it's not. Right. Uh, most of it is actually quite mountainous. Um, but no, Arizona, uh, a lot of the southern part of Nevada and California have kind of escaped the the storm. No one else has. Right. <laughs> every every other part of the country is being affected, and it is. It's causing havoc. It's killing people. Well, it must be also quite difficult for people that are not really used to that kind of that level of snow, right? Which I presume they're not in Texas. No, they're not. Um, you know, I grew up in Texas and I remember getting snow one time when I lived in Canyon, which is a, a town just a little bit south of Amarillo oh, right. when I was a kid. Um, and it was and it was chaos. Nobody could go anywhere. Nobody could do anything. Um, I remember my dad waiting down the back of his Dotson pickup, mm. Dotson, mind you, uh, so that he could go to the store. <laughs> I know. Datsun, there's a name you don't hear very often now, do you? Because they changed it. I don't know why. Right. Do you remember that great? I mean, you're being a car aficionado. We'll remember the great, uh, the Datsun 260Z or whatever when you called it over there. Uh, yes. The um, yeah, the, the little Z car. Oh, that's yeah. fabulous. Went like it's a, a, like, went like a rocket, basically. 
Amazing. It sure did. It didn't weigh anything. No, exactly <laughs> right. Now, uh, let's talk about uh, our favourite couple, Harry and Meghan, because uh, they announced very, very quietly and privately this week that uh, Meghan's expecting yeah. another child. And then, sure enough, uh, they decided they'd tell the world exactly how hard their lives have been uh, by giving an exclusive interview to um, multimillionaire Oprah Winfrey. Right. Well, you know, you can only talk to people who are like you. Yes. And the only person really like them is Oprah <laughs> because <laughs> they're all fabulously wealthy. Right. Um, and what's weird about this is Oprah. I mean, I think it's weird because you're supposed to be interviewing a couple. Oprah's actually sitting down with Megan mm. first. Right. And then Harry will join them later. Right. So I get the feeling that Harry has to come up come up in the rear uh, quite a bit in this marriage. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt as to who's wearing the trousers, as we would say, uh, in this country in that particular situation. I mean, Harry only gets to do what he does uh, if she gives him permission, I think. Well, it sort of feels that way, doesn't it? Mm. Um, it it's, it's, a, it's an interesting relationship. Uh, and it's even made even more interesting by their claims that they want to keep everything private and then, you know, presumably just putting everything on blast <laughs> immediately after saying that we want our privacy and we want our quiet. Yeah, leave it's us like, alone. No, you just want to control your narrative, and that's different. Exactly right. <laughs> now, my question to you, though, is how big uh, will this interview be in America? I mean, obviously, Oprah Winfrey's massive, and everything she does is, has got great PR around it and all that. She's doing it with CBS, I think. Um, but, you know... To speak of, of, about the royal family, of course, will be popular. Um, but we're expecting Meghan to throw the royal family under the bus, basically, and say that it was terrible. You know, she married into it and expected everyone in it to change for her. And she's not very happy about the fact that they didn't. No, she doesn't appear to be very happy that they didn't. I think that um, Meghan has very high expectations of the people around her bending to her will. Mm. And um, I, I don't think the Queen is having any of that nonsense no. uh, or anybody else in the in the royal family. Mm. Um, it, you know, it's unfortunate because you see this sort of this rift play out on a large stage. And it happens to a lot of families, you know, where, where you know, one couple, they get married. And for whatever reason, there's a, a problem with the family and you see families kind mm. of fracture. Yeah. So you're, you're just watching it on a kind of a larger and much more wealthy scale. Yes, exactly right. But it is pretty tawdry to watch. And it is a bit like a car crash. You can't kind of take your eyes off it. No, you really can't. And why would you? Mm. I mean, it, you know, she is determined, Megan is, to make this as entertaining as possible, all the while crying about how rough her life is. Well, I'm sorry, but you live in a, you know, in a neighborhood that doesn't include any of the little people. Mm. Um, you're not the little people. Well, this is why, <laughs> this is why I, I do wonder. For you. This is why I do wonder whether, apart from the kind of fanatical fan base that she seems to have, whether most of America will care what she says. I honestly don't. I think that, that, you know, much like you, I kind of look at it as a car crash. It's like, gosh, I should look at that. But I think I'm going to be embarrassed for her. Hmm. So I, I'm not sure I can. No, I know. Absolutely right. Well, listen, uh, how long are you in Arizona for? Are you going to be there for the duration? I'm going to be here for uh, just a couple more days. I'm going to drive out of here early on Saturday and get back to work with all this remote equipment and uh, uh, try to figure out where I go from here. I so you're no going to drive to San Diego? Yeah, I drove here. Really? Drove How long here. does that take? I got take? off the air. Uh, it takes about six hours, and if you're not me. That's um, not, that's not bad, about, actually. I thought it'd be longer than that. It took about five for me. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't have to admit to any offences to be taken into account. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much indeed to Donna Harvey. She's got a very fast car. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.